Well, I think as we begin this morning, we need to uh, recognize that Devin Brown is with us uh, for the first time in many, many months after her uh, hip replacement surgery. And so I think it'd be fit if we give Devin a warm uh, round of applause and welcome her uh, here this morning. Devin, all those months you were gone, no one took your seat. What's that? Oh, someone did. Oh, you saw okay, online. You saw someone took your seat. All right. Well, they quickly moved out of the way once they saw you were, uh, were returning. So welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Let's take our uh, Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And we're picking up in verse 12. And so let's read this, uh, read this passage of Scripture together. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. And we'll read to the end of the chapter together. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, that's being Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And the quote is, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning and to consider the truth of your word. Lord, may we be in awe of our Savior this morning, the kindness he showed in coming to this earth to fulfill a particular mission so that we might be redeemed from our sins and assured of an eternal home with you. Let our hearts be thankful for your love and grace. 
and help us to know and love you more through the study this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, perhaps you have read a book or have watched a movie uh, that could be considered a slow starter. Let me encounter that particular uh, situation. Maybe it took a while for the book or the movie to get going because there were a number of details that needed to be uh, unpacked and unfolded before things could really get rolling. Uh, I had this experience one time. I, I, I'm not really a I have a particular genre of movies that I do watch and others I'm just sort of ignorant of. And so I sat down one time and watched The Lord of the Rings. And I, made the, I, I didn't know that it was three movies. I thought it was just one. And I got to the end of the first one, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. It was this long of a movie and he still didn't get the ring to the fire. And then I find out there's three movies and... He gets all the way to the third one, and then he had changed of heart. He can't throw the ring in the... F- I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it for anybody who hasn't, who hasn't seen it, but I was, I was amazed, by, uh, amazed by that and, and had to watch all three like in consecutive nights just so that I could get through this, uh, and, uh, this uh, what I would say, torture. Now, I realize I just offended half of you in this, <laughs> in this uh, illustration, but sometimes we can watch a show or a movie, and it becomes a little bit of a slow starter. Now, I don't intend to imply uh, at all that Matthew is boring, but uh, Matthew feels a little bit like a slow starter in that sense. And the details that are contained here in the first four chapters, they are not boring and they are not unimportant, quite the contrary. But I say this because just now we are finishing chapter 4 or coming to the end of chapter 4, And only now are we getting or about to get to the meat of the book, the ministry of Jesus in chapter 5. So far, we have seen a lot of necessary details that have built up to what we are going to see in in chapter 5. We have seen that Jesus is born as the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's presented in a genealogy to start the book. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 as the virgin-born son who would be called Emmanuel. He... Uh, He receives worship from the Magi and is subsequently an attempt on his life is made by Herod. We have seen that that the ministry of John the Baptist introduces Jesus in John chapter 3. Then Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends, the heavens open, and, and God declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately following that, at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is driven into the wilderness uh, to be tempted by Satan, and he passes uh, the, the, the test. And all of this happens before the ministry of Jesus even begins. And all of this happens before Matthew can even get to the meat of his book. And so everything that has, has come up to this point is preparatory for what will happen over the next several chapters as we, as we consider next week chapter 5. Now, after working through these necessary and important details, it's that Matthew's about to get to the heart of his book, but before he does, he gives us one last set of details, or we might say a summary statement, if you will, to set the stage for Jesus' ministry that is about to take place. And our task this morning is to unpack the final summary statement of 
of, of, of details here in this passage before we get into the ministry of Jesus. So this section here, verses 12 to 25, has three separate sections, and we're going to consider them together because they're, like I said, it's a summary to prepare us for the ministry of Jesus. So first of all, there is the location of Jesus' ministry in verses 12 to 16. Then we see the participants in Jesus' ministry in verses 18 through 22. And then we see the nature of Jesus' ministry in verses 23 through 25. In fact, I'll add verse 17 to that section that tell us the nature of Jesus' ministry. And in this text, we catch a glimpse of Jesus' heartbeat and by implication what our heartbeat should be as well as followers of, of his. So let's begin in verses 12 to 16 by considering the location of Jesus' ministry. The location of Jesus' ministry. So Matthew begins with this summary. He, be, or he begins the summary with what seems to be a number of uh, irrelevant details about the location of Jesus' ministry. And I say they, they seem irrelevant because you and I are not familiar with these locations and uh, the details don't seem to be uh, biblically significant to us. But as we'll see, they are significant for Matthew. So Matthew shows us that there is, in verse 12, a deliberate movement by Jesus to the north following the imprisonment of John. Look at verse 12 again. And we see, he says, now when he heard, Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now the details of John's imprisonment will be unfolded for us uh, in Matthew chapter 14, and we will eventually get there as we see his imprisonment, the cause of his imprisonment, and the eventual death. But suffice it to say that John finds himself in prison because of his public denouncement of Herod's new marriage. His new wife also happens to be his former sister-in-law, and apparently, no one told John that it was intolerant to spout off about other people's moral choices. And so John finds himself in prison. Now, Jesus and John carried on simultaneous ministries, at least for a short time. You remember in, in John's gospel, all the disciples were leaving John and going to Jesus. And the few disciples that were left with John asked him, Okay, everybody's going to him. What should we make of this? And John says, he must increase and I must decrease. So there was a time where they carried on simultaneous ministry. But now with John in prison, Jesus makes a move toward the region of Galilee. And it may have been that Jesus was attempting to distance himself from sort of the controversy or the trouble or the, 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 that may have come from the leaders in the region of Judea. Now, the next thing Matthew tells us is the location in which Jesus settled, where he carried out his ministry. So verse 12 shows us that no longer did he reside in Nazareth, the town in which he was raised, but now he's located in Capernaum. And perhaps it was the fact that maybe a prophet is not welcomed in his own city that forced Jesus into Capernaum. Uh, we don't know the case there, but this was where Jesus ministered and it's in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. 
It would have been a larger and more significant town than was Nazareth. Now, the region of Galilee is, uh, it had about 200 villages. And uh, like 100 years or 200 years after Christ, uh, research shows that there were about 200 villages and about 15,000 people per village. I, I should have done the math. It would have just been as simple as taking 2,000 uh, times, uh, 200 times 15,000, but I didn't. So I'll leave that to you to, to, to figure out what that is afterward. Uh, it, it, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So imagine Jesus on foot is moving through a region the size of Metro Detroit for a number of months or maybe more than a year, almost two years, so that he might... Uh, begin and carry out his earthly ministry. Now, this detail is important for a couple reasons. First, we would expect that the promised king would carry out his ministry in the capital city of Jerusalem. But that's not where we find Jesus carrying out his ministry. Instead, he is in the northern region of Galilee. But secondly, this detail is important because Matthew tells us it was a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. In fact, look at verses 15 and 16 again, and we read this. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So, so the question is, what is the context of that prophecy, and in what way does Jesus fulfill this? Well, as you know, Isaiah 7 to 9 is a presentation of, of the messianic son of David who was, who was to come. So you remember back to Isaiah 7, there's the promise that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, it was assigned to Ahaz in the house of David. You're probably familiar as well with Isaiah 9, uh, 6 and following that speak of the, the, the coming of the Messiah as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the section of Isaiah uh, 7 to 9 and, and the, the, coming of the coming of the Messiah. But in, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the Messiah is said to be a light in the midst of darkness among the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, so here's what you need to picture. The region of Galilee was the region where these two tribes came together. And the region is said to be in darkness by Isaiah. And the reason for this is that these tribes on the northern border of Israel were the first tribes to receive the mistreatment by the nation of Assyria. So when the northern kingdom was taken captive, it was these two northern tribes that received the most brutal treatment at the hands of the Assyrians. In fact, you notice in verse 16 that Isaiah even refers to this as the shadow of, of death. So this was a place of, of darkness, a place that had seen tremendous darkness through its years. And, and the prophecy that Isaiah gives is that while they'll be the first to be plunged into darkness, they will also be the first to receive a great light. And so when Jesus sort of providentially 
moving up to do his ministry in the region of Galilee, is fulfilling this prophecy and is, and is bringing the light of the world to this region as Isaiah prophesied. So once again, what Matthew's doing is he is rooting the identity of Jesus in the Old Testament Scriptures. I forgot to do this, but it would be a good exercise to go back through chapters 1, 2, and 3 and to just count the number of connections that Matthew makes to Old Testament quotations about Jesus. And here in our passage, we have another one of those examples. And this, again, would have been his attempt to convince his Jewish readers that Jesus was the promised king of the Old Testament. Okay, so this is the location in which Jesus' ministry takes place. Now we move, secondly, to the participants of Jesus' ministry in verses 18 to 22. Look at those verses with me again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So the next thing Matthew mentions as he's preparing us for Jesus' ministry is the calling of four particular disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Now, eventually, Jesus would have 12 disciples, as you know, and the only other place in Matthew where a disciple is called, or these details are are unfolded for us, is in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus calls Matthew himself. Then all the disciples are named for us in chapter 10. But here in our chapter, in terms of preparation for Jesus' ministry, there are four disciples called. Now, the calling of the disciples can be a bit confusing for us at times. That's not to say that what Matthew says is confusing, because it's pretty straightforward. But the confusing thing is there are different accounts through the Gospels of the calling of the disciples. So the first place we find uh, Andrew and Peter is in John chapter 1, where our scripture reading was. Let's go back to John chapter 1, and we'll consider what what we have here in the the first mention of of Andrew and and Simon. So John chapter 1, if you would, and pick up again in verse 35. So the next day, as Mike said, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples... And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, Come with me. So they came with him and and, and spent time. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here's our first mention of Andrew. Now, you'll notice that the other disciple here is not mentioned. 
Most people believe that the other disciple is John himself. Because as you read through the book of John, John often refers to himself, but he refers to himself anonymously as the disciple that Jesus loved, or possibly in this case, there were two disciples, and he mentions Andrew, but then doesn't mention himself. We find out later in the scriptures, or as we'll see in Luke, that, that Andrew and Peter, James and John are, are fishing partners. So there was already a relationship that existed here. So verse 40, uh, Andrew then introduces or Jesus to, I'm sorry, he introduces Peter to Jesus. Verse 41, he found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas. So here we have this interaction between Jesus, Andrew, Peter, and, and possibly John. And this is the first exchange they have with Jesus. But you notice that in this particular passage, there's no calling of Andrew or Peter to follow as a disciple. That happens in a different context. So let's go to uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we read this in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little for the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Probably those of you who are fishermen in our midst have experienced this frustration and would have enjoyed an encounter like this with Jesus getting in your boat with you. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's, why, why does he respond like that? Well, because Jesus' miraculous work here testifies to who Jesus is. For he, verse 9, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish, and they had taken, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Okay, so here we have the official calling of, of Andrew and Peter. We go back to Matthew chapter 4, and what I think is happening in Matthew chapter 4 is that Jesus is, or Matthew rather, is giving us the same incident as we have in Luke chapter 5, although he leaves out these details about the, the great catch of fish. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus sort of comes upon him and he says, 
follow me as my disciples, but doesn't mention the miracle of the fish that's taking place. Now, what we should assume here is, is this, that when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, that it was not necessarily the first encounter that they had with Jesus. Sometimes we can read the Gospels and we think, this is really strange. A stranger comes up to him and says, follow me. They don't even know who he is, and then they just follow him. Okay? That's probably not the case that was taking place. Rather, they probably had some sort of uh, encounter with Jesus, came to faith that he was the, the promised Messiah, and then it was after that, subsequently, that Jesus then says, come and follow me. That might not have been the case with every apostle, but at least it might be the pattern with a number of the apostles that they knew Jesus before they became disciples. Now, the specific call given to Andrew and Peter, and, and likely to James and John, was to follow Christ and that they would become fishers of men. Jesus is obviously here playing off their occupation, which makes me wonder if when he called Matthew, he said, you know, you were collecting taxes and now you'll collect people. And uh, I, I, that seems a little weird. I doubt he did that. But uh, what he does here, though, is he plays off their occupation. And what Jesus means here is that your life has been devoted to catching fish, to gathering fish, and, and now you will gather men and women for the kingdom. And notice their response in verses 20 and 22. They left everything, their nets, their boats, their family, in order to follow Christ. We'll say more about the cost of discipleship later, but we see here that John shows us how immediate their leaving was. They leave their boats, they leave their family, and they follow Christ. Now, the ministry of the disciples and would eventually be the apostles is, is different but similar to the ministry that Christ has given us. It's different in the sense that this was Jesus' core team. They were the ones who taught Jesus. They were given a special role as the, as the church unfolds. They are given a special role as the foundation of the church, Ephesians refers them to. As I said, they were, they were taught specifically by Jesus, and they had unique giftings with the abilities to perform signs and wonders to attest to their message. But at the same time, their calling is similar to ours in that the task of fishing for men is the same task that we have. In fact, as the end of the book words it, it's not wording it as fishers of men anymore, but in the Great Commission, they're to go and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And as they did this, and as the book of Acts unfolds, what we find is that the apostles or the disciples are not the only ones who are involved in the work of, of fishing for, for men or making and maturing disciples. As they go into the book of Acts, we find them preaching, baptizing, establishing churches, and then repeating the process. Preaching, baptizing, establishing churches, and then repeating the process. And what we find in the book of Acts is that every believer was engaged in this mission. In fact, if, if you were to turn over to Acts chapter 4, you turn over to Acts chapter 4, and we'll just notice two passages where we see this, we see this unfold. 
those of you who are with us on Wednesday night, we considered this passage together. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal a lame beggar. In Acts chapter 4, they stand before the authorities because they healed him in the name of Jesus and they're proclaiming uh, salvation in Jesus. And they're sternly rebuked near the middle of Acts chapter 4, don't speak in Jesus' name. And then in verse 23, when they're released from the governing officials, they, they go to their friends and they report what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lift up their voice to God and they pray. And it's interesting what they pray for. If you skip down to verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So here we find that, that it's, it's the believers collectively, not just the apostles, who have the responsibility for speaking the word and for, for fishing for men. And they do this, they're not praying for opposition to cease, but they're praying that they would be bold in the face of opposition. As the book of Acts moves forward to chapter 7, Stephen eventually is the first martyr and then we read this in, 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 verse, in, in chapter 8, that, that Stephen is, is put to death, he's buried, Saul continues to persecute the church. And we read this in 8.4, that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, so this is the pattern that we, that we see. This is the, the, the similarity between the mission of the disciples and our mission as well. We are called to be fishers of men. So whatever gifts and abilities the Lord has given you, whatever interests or talents you have, we all have the responsibility to be faithful servants of Christ in spreading the good news of Christ. So the question we should ask ourselves, okay, so where am I located? Where has God put me? And what opportunities has he given me to be a fisher of men? Now notice as you continue through Matthew 4 there that this was a costly endeavor for these men. So one of the first disciples called is also one of the first disciples who is killed. So James chapter, or Acts chapter 12 tells us that James is killed by Herod for his faithfulness in preaching the gospel. And I only think about this, that little did James know that stepping out of that boat to follow Jesus was going to cost him his life. And we would say with the book of Hebrews of a man like James, this was a man of whom the world was not worthy. Okay, so we've seen the location of Jesus' ministry. We have seen the participants in Jesus' ministry. And now lastly, we move to the nature of Jesus' ministry. Look with me, if you will, in verses 17 and then verses 23 through 25. Beginning verse 17, we see this. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now skip down to verse 23. And he went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction 
among the people. We can, we can stop there. As the passage continues, it talks about his fame spreading and he's, he's doing uh, different kinds of, of healing. Okay? So in verse 23, we see that Jesus' ministry consisted of three things. Now, let me just step back and say what's going to happen here. He gives this summary statement in verses 23 to 25. Jesus is preaching. Jesus is healing. And, he, and he, it's a summary statement because in the very next chapter, he's going to record one of his sermons that he preached in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he's going to show us the miracles that he did. And then in chapter 9, verse 35, he's going to give a summary statement that's almost identical to the one we have here in verse 23. Okay? So here's the, the picture of how these chapters break, break, break down for us. Right, So Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. Now let me give you a couple examples. 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. 8 and 9, the miracles that Jesus did. But this summary statement here sets up what we're about to see in the chapters that unfold. Okay? And I think I got ahead of myself there, but I will know as I get further into, uh, into my notes. But verse 23, we see that Jesus' ministry consists of three things. He's teaching in their synagogues, he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he is healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So at the heart of Jesus' ministry is teaching, preaching, and healing. So if you read through the, through the gospels, you're going to find Jesus doing one of those three things. And this message that he proclaims, we see in verse 17, is repent for the gospel or for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Now, this is the identical message that, that John the Baptist preached. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 2, you see John proclaiming the same exact message as Jesus. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then as the gospel moves forward, Jesus is continuing to proclaim this message. In chapter 10, as Jesus sends his apostles out into, to, to the work, out into the field to do the work of the ministry, they're saying the same thing. The kingdom is at hand. Now, we noted from our previous study in, in John's message that the kingdom here that's being promised, it, it's not explained for us. It's just simply stated. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what's being referred to here is the kingdom that the Old Testament promised that there would be a king who sits on the Davidic throne who rules the nation of Israel in justice. And, and the fact that this kingdom was at hand means that it was near because Jesus, the king, was present. It was so near they could reach out and touch it. It hasn't been established yet, but the presentation of the kingdom is here because the, the king himself was here. Now notice something here about the breakup of, of, of the gospel of Matthew. Verse 17 begins with these three words, from this time. Now, these words are important for the structure of Matthew's gospel. The presentation of the kingdom is the focal point of Jesus' ministry all throughout the gospel until you get to chapter 16, verse 21, where these three words are repeated, from this time. So in other words, here's how, here's how the book of Matthew breaks down. Chapter 4, verse 17. From this time, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then the rest of the gospel is, is Jesus offering and presenting the kingdom to Israel. But then, 
you get to chapter 16, verse 21, and it says, from this time, Jesus now turns his attention to his crucifixion and begins to talk about his, his coming death. And so the question is, okay, why the change from 417 to 1621? What has changed and why is the message of Jesus now changing? Okay, well, as Jesus is presenting the kingdom to Israel through chapters 4 through 16, opposition is continuing to increase against Jesus. And it's becoming more and more evident that this generation of Israelites is not going to receive the kingdom because of their rejection of Jesus. And so the, the rejection continues to build and build through the chapters. It reaches its peak in chapter 12 as, as, the, as the, the leaders commit the unpardonable sin of attributing the, the miracles of Jesus to the work of Satan. And then opposition continues to build against Jesus from there. So that by the time you get to chapter 16, verse 21, he says, From this time, then Jesus begins to speak of his coming death. Jesus' focus changes. The kingdom program is on hold now until Jesus' second coming. And at this point, he will be crucified. Now, as we said from verse 23, the essence of Jesus' ministry here on earth was teaching, preaching, and healing. And as you read through the Gospels, it said, you'll see Jesus doing this. But Matthew tells us this because he's about to unpack, as I said, a large amount of details. We already covered that. I'll skip that portion in my notes, okay? So, Jesus is preaching, teaching, and healing, but I want to highlight this. The healing that Jesus did was also in connection to the presentation of the kingdom. Let me say that again. The healing that Jesus did was also in connection to the presentation of the kingdom. Okay, so he's teaching about the kingdom, He's preaching about the kingdom. Okay, but what do you mean that he's healing in connection with the presentation of the kingdom? Well, I want you to know that Jesus, when he healed people, he was not simply healing people out of pity and compassion. Now, he was healing people out of pity and compassion. But the primary purpose for which Jesus performed miracles and did healings was to testify to the fact that he was the promised king. Okay, so look at two passages. Go to Matthew chapter 11. And these are, I think, really neat passages that connect the miracles of Jesus to the presentation of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1 when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, and he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Now stop right there. John's in prison. He's hearing of the works of Christ. He's probably having a moment of, of, of doubt as to whether the one for whom he was the forerunner was indeed the one. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, in verse 3, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? 
And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't really answer his question, does he? It says in verse 4, he says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, why doesn't Jesus answer John's question if he is the one? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he is taking John's mind back to Isaiah 35 that predicted that the Messiah who would come would give the blind their sight, heal the sick, raise the dead. And so what he's doing here is he says, what he's saying is, John, the signs that that are seen that I'm doing are testifying to the fact that I am indeed the promised king. So all he has to do is say, just go tell John what, he, what you see and what you hear, and you will know because the works I do testify to the fact that I am indeed the promised king. Now go to chapter 12, and we see something similar. Chapter 12, and skip down toward... Um, well, verse 22, but that's not the specific verse you want to consider, but verse 22, a demon-oppressed man was blind and mute. He was brought to Jesus, and he heals him so that, so that man spoke and, and saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, verse 23, here's the question, can this be the son of David? What, what are they asking there? Can this be the promised one of Israel, the, the coming king? Well, when the Pharisees hear this, they're like, no, 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 no. There must be a different explanation for what, what is taking place here. And so they offer their explanation in verse 24. The Pharisees heard it and they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince, of, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they're saying this is the work of Satan. And Jesus is like, this doesn't make sense. Because why would Satan cast out demons? A house divided itself uh, amongst itself cannot stand. But then he says this in verse 28. He says, but, guys, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay? Because the works I do testify to the fact that I am the king. So, The miracles that Jesus did were not simply to be compassionate or to take pity on people, although he was compassionate when he did that. But rather, these were signs that pointed to the fact that he was indeed the promised king of Israel. In fact, you'll you'll know that a, a common word for the miracles in the scriptures is signs or signs and wonders. And remember what Nicodemus says to Jesus. He says, we know you're a teacher from God, for no one can do what? These signs, except God be with him. They're called signs because they point to the identity of Jesus. So just about once a year, I get the chance to go back to Connecticut and where I grew up and have those nostalgic moments of seeing your 
your old house and all your old baseball field and things like that. But that's another story for another time. But one place I, I, I love to go is to Haystack Mountain. And it's uh, a, a, just a, a spot that overlooks New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, where all three states come together. And it's a really pretty uh, spot. It has this tower on the top of it. You look out the window or out the, out the top and you see all this. Okay. The tradition, though, is on the way to Haystack Mountain, we stop and we get our picture taken by the Haystack Mountain Connecticut State Park sign. Okay. It's a cool little sign. Uh, and it's neat to get our picture taken there. But that's not the, the main event, right? That's just the sign that points to the main event. Okay? The miracles of Jesus, those weren't the main things. They were the signs that pointed to the main thing, that this is the king. And so the miracles of Jesus proved the fact that he was the king. So he was teaching about the kingdom, he was preaching about the kingdom, and he was healing in connection with the kingdom. In fact, you have this interesting passage in, in Mark chapter 1. Uh, Jesus is, is doing all these signs and wonders, and he's exhausted. They've been bringing all these people to him. He gets up early the next day to pray, and Peter goes, man, we've been looking for you because all these people have sicknesses and they want to be here, healed. And in Mark 1.38, I think it is, Jesus says, well, let's go to a different place because what I really came to do is to teach about the good news of why I came. So Jesus' primary purpose here is to present the good news of the kingdom. That was Jesus' mission, to, to bring the good news of the kingdom, which only comes through repentance and belief in Christ. Now, quickly, why is it important that we understand Jesus' ministry, the purpose of his ministry, and particularly the role that miracles served in his ministry. I think it's because over the last decades, it has been popular for the church to, I say the, the church, more broadly speaking, for the church to have an understanding of its mission be more dual in, in nature. So they, the church is common today to think about the church having both a spiritual purpose and a socio-political purpose. And so they argue that the mission of the church is, yes, to preach the gospel, but it's also to meet physical needs, and it's also to solve social problems, and it's also to stop injustice. And when they take this position, what they will often do is point back to the example of Jesus. Well, just look at what Jesus did. Jesus preached, but he also healed. Jesus preached, but he also fed. And, and I would submit to you that this is a misunderstanding of, of, of Jesus' mission. It's a misunderstanding of, of why the miracles existed. They existed to, to testify to who he was. And so you remember, if you think, the, the, the real extreme bad example of this was the liberal social gospel of the early 1900s. And it was out of that that movement where they had completely lost the gospel and it was all about social good. And, and the, the phrase, terminology there was, what would Jesus do? Well, that expression was birthed out of liberalism because what would Jesus do? Well, he would feed the poor and he would heal the sick. And so that became the emphasis to the loss at the expense of, of the gospel. 
And, and then in the mid of the mid-1900s, there was then this return to sort of see, yes, both a spiritual and a socio-political uh, commitment to the mission of the church. But I would submit to you, when we want to understand what the mission of the church is, like what should we be doing as a church, we need to look after the Gospels, not go back to the example of Jesus, because his ministry was unique. As you see, he had a purpose for his miracles. But the question is, okay, how do the apostles understand the Great Commission? Well, they, they were given the command to make and mature disciples. What did they do after that? Well, it wasn't solving social ills and, 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 and working to solve injustice and, and political engagement. No, what was it? They preached, they baptized, they discipled, they built local churches, they repeated. That's the mission of the church. And really, I think Jesus sets an example as his primary mission was to teach and preach the good news of the kingdom. So friends, this is why this is what Christ has for us, that you and I be committed fishers of men to preach, to baptize, to teach, to build churches, and to repeat the process. And Christ's ministry sets the example for us. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the time we can spend unpacking your word, and we ask that you would take it and use it to build our knowledge and love for you and a reminder of what our responsibility is as believers. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.